We love you. We praise you. And in your name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And whether today you know it or whether you don't, we have so much to be thankful for. We have so much to give God praise for in our lives. With that said, if you have your Bibles, I trust that you do. If you can open with me to the Gospel of John chapter 20. The Gospel of John chapter 20. We started our Gospel of John series last year, the Sunday after Easter. We have today and next week, and we will be done with this Gospel, moving into another new series after that. But each message in this series has called us one way or another to believe calling us to deeper faith. Every message has called us in some form, some way to deeper faith in Christ and to exercise that faith. I read a story this week about two nuns who were also nurses and they had to go out into the country to attend to a patient who was suffering from some particular illness. So the nuns got in their car, they were driving to this sick patient when they ran out of gas. So just picture that scene. Two nuns standing on the side of the road beside a car that ran out of gas. And they just stood there not knowing what to do. And finally, a trucker drove up in his huge semi pulled behind them. He sees them in distress and he gets out and says, Sisters, can I help you? And they said, We ran out of gas and could we just get some gas from your truck? That would be helpful. And of course, he said, sure, you can drain as much as you need, but I do not have a gas can that you can use. So one of the nuns, remember also a nurse, went to the back seat of their car and found a clean bedpan in which she proceeded to drain gas from the truck into the bedpan. And once the bedpan was full of gas, the nuns thanked the driver. The driver then drove away and the two nuns sat on the side of the road filling their gas can, their, their car with gas from a bedpan. Just so happened in that moment that a highway patrolman pulled up and was observing what was going on. He watched for a little bit and then he pulled up beside the sisters, rolled down his window, and he said, Sisters, I don't think it's going to work, but I admire your faith. <laughs> Some of you, you won't get that until you figure out what a bedpan is used for. Others of you, I'll give up, but here's the deal. I so admire the faith of this faith family. I admire your faith, but all of us, we can still grow in our faith. And let me say this, we must. We must all grow in our faith. And the book of John, it's a book of dealing with belief and faith, and it's one of the most translated books in all of history missionaries who translate the Bible into other languages often begin with the Gospel of John because in and through the Gospel of John, we have one of the most clearest and sustained pictures of Jesus and his glory in all of Scripture. But John's Gospel is more than just a book to be read or a series to walk through and then set aside. Rather, it's aimed directly at our hearts and lives and the impact that it's supposed to have, not just today, but tomorrow. It's almost as if John, in writing this gospel, looked down the corridor leading into the future. And what he saw at the end of that corridor as he was writing his gospel was your face and mine. Meaning he was writing this gospel for us as well. There was a message that he wanted 
us to know, as well as those that he was writing to in that day, that Jesus loves us. Jesus came to earth to die for us. Jesus arose from the dead for us. Jesus offers life for us. And we are able to believe that and have life in his name. So today I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand. We are going to basically unpack today two verses. Yes, you heard that correct, two verses. You probably won't get out any earlier, so go ahead and set that aside. But we're going to look at John 20, verses 30 and 31 together. And John writes this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, for reading that, I think we have to begin by saying, as as Mike just said, Lord, we thank you that we do have your word, that we have your written word, that we're able to study it and, and know it and know you in and through it. And we thank you for the things that have been written, that we can read your word, hear your word, and have our faith grow because of it. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Lord, today I pray that you would, Lord, increase our faith in this time. Those here, those watching online, Lord, maybe it's faith for the first time in Jesus today. Or maybe it is just increasing that faith, Lord, in you that will have an impact in our lives and the lives of others. Have your way in this time, O God, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So John writes this gospel to provoke faith in Jesus, resulting, of course, in eternal life for us. But that phrase, that you may believe, that we just read, could also be translated that you may continue to believe. So John is likely writing first to call unbelievers to faith in Jesus, but also to call believers to continue to believe, continue to grow in your faith, grow in your belief in Jesus. And I don't know if you know this, but the world in which we live is growing more and more lost. And then let me say something that I'm going to be careful how I word this, but this is going to be harsh. But not, not only is the world that we live growing more and more lost, professing believers, and I can do quotation marks there, are more and more ignorant of God's word. More and more ignorant about what the Bible says. Last year, Ligonier's ministry conducted a theological survey among professing believers. The results of that survey were both shocking and disturbing. The survey basically asked professing believers what they believed about very clear truth statements or truth claims from the Bible. And the results found that basically a significant number of professing believers have a profound misunderstanding about the nature and character of God and his word. Let me just give you a few. Almost three out of four, 73% agreed with the claim that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 73% of professing believers believe that Jesus is a created being. More than half, 58%, believe that God accepts the worship of all religions, no matter what they believe about Jesus. More than half, 56%, agree that worshiping alone or only with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 
even though the Bible tells us not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together, more than half, 55%, believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, but not a personal being. Even though every time Jesus referred to him in the Gospel of John, it is he. He in a personal nature, a person. More than half, 55%, agree that everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Even though the Bible says none are righteous. No, not one. More than, more than half or more than half, 53% disagree with the claim that even the smallest sin deserves eternal punishment. Even though the Bible says the soul that sins will surely die. And then almost half, 44%, say that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Let that sink in today. Two out of three, every three of those surveyed think that Jesus is a created being. A person who at one time did not exist. And although he's regarded by those people as the greatest being created by God, he is nevertheless only a created being. In other words, in their minds, Jesus is not eternal. He is not self-existent. He is finite. And by definition, he can't be God. Because God is the creator and not one who was created. And that belief, if that is true, that changes everything because it doesn't lead to salvation. So with the remaining time that we have, I want us to unpack today three truths that just leap, jump out of these two simple yet very profound verses in the Gospel of John. So the first is this, the signs that Jesus performed. The signs that Jesus performed. If you look at verse 30 on the screen, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. In fact, the whole Gospel of John ends in John 21, verse 25, this way. It's on the screen. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. If you take all the miracles, individual miracles that were written in all four Gospels, you would have a list of only 40 miracles, around 40 miracles that Jesus did in his ministry. Scholars have concluded that the Gospels altogether only record about 50 days of Jesus' ministry. The Gospel of John only gives us 20 days of his ministry. Most scholars believe that Jesus' ministry lasted around three and a half years, so around 1,250 days. That means that we only have a record of about 4% of Jesus' ministries. Just think about, just imagine the teachings the conversations, the miracles, the ministries that we've never heard about. The things that we only have a record of 4% of the things that Jesus did in his life, or 4% of the days of his ministry. Imagine all the things that we don't know about. There are many things that Jesus did and said that John doesn't include. They're not written in his gospel. And here's what we need to remember, that the gospel of John is a very selective account of Jesus' life. And as we've seen before, there are four gospels that were written to four different audiences that show us four different views of the same Savior, of the same Messiah, of the same Jesus the third century scholar Origen was correct when he said we don't really have four gospels. We have one fourfold gospel. We have one gospel that points us to one Savior. 
And now before I go and tell you all the signs that John includes, I need to kind of tell you what John doesn't include. So we can unpack that statement, which are not written in this book. Think about all the things that John didn't write. There is no account of the birth of Jesus in John's gospel. John does not describe how the, or John does describe how the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but it's a different angle. There's no account of the baptism of Jesus by John the baptizer. There's no account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness by Satan. John does not include any of the parables, the teachings of Jesus. John gives us no account of Jesus exercising demons or healing lepers. There's no formal list of the 12 apostles in the Gospel of John. There's no mention of Jesus' transfiguration where he stood and appeared with Moses and Elijah. There is no record of the formal institution of the Lord's Supper. This is my body. This is my blood. And there's no mention of the agony that Jesus endured in the Garden of Gethsemane. Things that John doesn't include. But then look again at verse 31 because it says, but these things are written. So what are the these things? Let me begin by giving you a few that maybe couldn't be considered signs but are unique to John. The opening prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, Jesus. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And the word became flesh. That whole beautiful prologue that speaks of the exaltation, the incarnation, the deity of Jesus is only found in John. The lengthy dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus, where Jesus basically unpacks this idea that you must be born again, is only found in John. The conversation with the woman at the well is only found in John. The washing of the disciples' feet in John 13, only found here. The upper room discourse, John 13 through 16, these intimate teachings of Christ the night before his death to the disciples, only found here, that great prayer in John 17 that we call the true Lord's prayer or the high priestly prayer only found in John. And then we see that the use of sevens runs throughout the gospel of John. For in the Bible, the number seven portrayed a number of completeness or perfection. So in giving us these series of sevens, what John was really showing is I'm only going to give you seven because seven kind of sums up the fact that everything he did was complete and perfect. In fact, John gives us seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. I'm the resurrection and the life. John also gives us seven feasts that happened during Jesus' ministry. He gives us seven timeline statements where John either said the time of Jesus had, had not come or the time of Jesus had now come. John gives us seven different types of water that are mentioned in his gospel, and then John gives us seven signs. It has been said that John chapter 1 through 12 is the book of signs, and John chapter 12 or 13 through 21 is the book of glory. But in that first 12 chapters, those 12 chapters, we have seven signs that Jesus did. In John 2, Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in Cana. In John 4, Jesus healed the royal official son from a distance, not even being there, just 
declaring that he is healed, and he was. In John 5, Jesus healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, declaring himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. In John 6, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children with five loaves and two fish. In John 6 also, Jesus walked on the water to his fearful, dismayed disciples who were struggling against the waves. In John 9, Jesus healed a man who was born blind. That man said, I once was blind, but now I see. And then in John 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So seven signs, not even including the resurrection of Jesus and what happens after that. But John refers to these miracles, get this, as signs. Think about this. Don't miss this. The ultimate purpose of a sign is not to draw attention to itself. The ultimate purpose of a sign is to direct your attention elsewhere. So when you're driving down I-95 and you see a sign that says Bucky's, you don't pull over to the side of the road and take pictures in front of that sign and think that you've experienced the blessings of Bucky's. No, you drive, you go to where the sign is pointing and you walk into that gas station slash Cracker Barrel slash Walmart slash Disney World and you experience it all and you are better yet poor for having visited it. I mean, that's the beautiful picture of it. And these signs of Jesus, according to John, are not pointing to the signs themselves, but are pointing back to the person who performed them. Back to the God-man. And yet, don't miss this, brothers and sisters, Jesus did so much more. John ends this gospel by saying, if we wrote all the things that Jesus did in those 1,250 days of ministry, the books and the world could not contain them. That's how many things Jesus did in his ministry. All pointing to the fact of who he is. The signs he performs. Secondly, the belief Jesus requires. The belief Jesus requires. In verse 31 it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The emphasis all throughout John is believing. Believing is like a thread that runs all throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, the word believe is used 98 times in the Gospel of John and is only used 34 times in all the other Gospels combined. John wants us to believe. And think about where this verse sets the context here. Jesus had rose from the dead. Thomas had missed Jesus appearing. Thomas had said, I will not believe until I can touch, put my hands in his scars. I will not believe. And Jesus stands before Thomas eight days later and says, Thomas, take a look. Thomas, place your fingers here. Place your hand on my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Thomas, for you have believed and seen, but more blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. And here's the point. It's not necessary to see in order to believe. Yes, it was a blessing that the early Christians got to see the Lord, got to see him risen. That and them seeing him, it of course blew up the church as we know it with the Holy Spirit coming. But that's not what saved them. Seeing Jesus is not what saved them. Their belief in him is what saved them. 
We have to understand it's the object of our belief that saves us. And the object of our belief is the same object of their belief, a resurrected Savior. If God came and became flesh, uniting, perfectly uniting humanity with deity, and was killed and then resurrected, what we must declare is that the impossible has now become possible. But here's what I know. Everyone in this room, we all have doubts. We all have uncertainties. We all have things that we struggle with and things that don't make sense to each of us, right? It's okay to be honest. We, we all have those things, things that sound unbelievable until we encounter the resurrected one and we realize that all of our objections aren't true. We have to decide, every single person in this room, we have to decide between one of two things. Either we're going to let the evidence overrule our objections and the things that we don't understand, or we're going to turn from the evidence because of our objections. One of the things I wasn't able to get to last week when we're looking at doubts is I read an article, and it said this. The number one doubt that most people have is the doubt of, get this, I doubt Jesus because I know if I believe, I have to change the way I live. And here's the issue. That 98% of, 99% of the doubts that people have is because I don't want to believe because I want to be the God of my own life. And here's the deal, brothers and sisters. You should doubt yourself more than you doubt him. That, and here's, I doubt you because I know you. And I doubt me because I know me. But I must not doubt him because I know him. I know him. I know him. I know who he is. Think of it like this. There's a, a Yale physicist by the name of Robert Adair studied the science behind hitting a major league fastball. And he published it in a book called The Physics of Baseball. And let me unpack one conclusion. He says a 90 mile an hour fastball travels the 60 feet, 6 inches from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's glove in 400 milliseconds. That's less than half a second. Adair figured out that it takes the batter's brain 200 milliseconds to find the ball in the air to get the image in his brain and decide to decide whether to swing or not. So half of the time the ball is in the air, the batter is simply trying to decide whether or not to swing, what to do in that moment. Well, if the batter then decides to swing, the brain sends another or spends another 100 milliseconds deciding to swing the bat high low inside or outside the strike zone. So now you're down to 300 milliseconds before you've ever even swung. The swing itself, according to Adair, takes 150 milliseconds. So locating the ball, 200 milliseconds, 100 milliseconds, making decision, 150 swinging the bat. So 450 milliseconds, but the ball is in the catcher's glove in how how much time? 400 milliseconds. So Adair concludes that according to the laws of physics, hitting a 90-mile-an-hour fastball is impossible. Now, how many of you would agree with that? So none of us would agree with that, but why? Is it because you can prove his calculations wrong? I mean, no. Most of us, most of us in this room don't know physics. In fact, I am so thankful for a professor at UNF that had so much mercy and grace on me and gave me a C- minus in physics so I could pass. Because I begged him and I was like, you know, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I don't understand it. I don't get it. Please let me pass. And praise God, he did. So I can't even begin to try to make those calculations or disprove him from a physics standpoint. 
But we know it's not true because we see 90-mile-an-hour fastballs being hit every single day. We see people hitting them every single day. I can't explain the facts, but I also can't deny what I've seen. And that's the point. John says here this is not a theory that we have accepted because we can explain it all. We believe this because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the point here. Yet what does saving faith look like? What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to put our faith in Jesus? Years ago, there was a man named John Patton. He was from Scotland, and he had a burden put on his heart from the Lord for a group of islands in the South Pacific called the New Hebrides. And the people who lived there at the time were cannibalistic. But Patton, he loved them, he cared for them, yet at first he was in danger 24 hours a day. And he determined that he was going to translate the gospel of John into their language. And as he began the process, he quickly determined there was a huge problem. The problem was there was no word in their language for trust, belief, or faith. How in the world can you interpret the Gospel of John that mentions belief 98 times without any word for belief, for faith, for trust? So Patton tried to, to figure it out, and one day he was in his tent. And one of the indigenous men came into the tent, and Patton was sitting in his chair. He, had his, he was putting all his weight in the chair. He had his feet up, and Patton said this, What am I doing right now? And the word that the man spoke means to place your whole weight upon. So Patton heard that word, and that's how he translated faith, belief, or trust. So if you were to have read his interpretation of John 3.16, it would have said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever places their whole weight of faith upon him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That is believing. That is saving faith. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, placing all of your weight of faith and trust upon him, will be saved. Which begs the question, have you placed your faith in Christ in that way? Are you putting all your trust, leaning all your weight upon him? Or is it more of a 50-50 deal? Listen, in the words of William Bar Barclay, he says, So often we have a kind of vague, wistful longing that the promises of Jesus should be true. But the only way to enter into his promises is to believe in them with a clutching intensity of a drowning man. The only way to enter into the promises of Jesus is with the clutching intensity of a drowning man. If I'm drowning and you throw something at me, you better believe I'm not just going to go... I'm going to grab a hold of that sucker. I'm going to hold on for dear life. And that's the picture, trusting Jesus that way. Is that the belief? That, is that our belief? Because that is the belief that Jesus requires. Which leads us to number three, the life Jesus gives. The life Jesus gives. Look at verse 31. You've seen the screen. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? You may have what? Life in his name. Life is mentioned in the Gospel of John 36 times. And it's referring to the eternal life that Jesus alone can give. 
Now, if you've been in church any period of time, you have either heard or maybe you've taken an evangelism course. And if you've been in church, taken an evangelism course, you have either been asked or you have asked the question, if you were to die tonight, and I don't know why we always die at nighttime, but that's just the way it is. If you were to die tonight and you were to stand before God and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And I've learned that question, been asked that question. And of course, the question was given for us to be able to know the person that we're asking, what are they trusting in for their salvation? So I understand the thought behind the question, but when I hear that question now, I am concerned that if we're not careful, many people don't understand what Jesus meant when he talked about eternal life. And what I mean by that is this, because there is a tendency, if we're not careful, for us to only focus on when a person dies and what, what faith is necessary for them to get to heaven without ever considering that the faith that leads to heaven always has an impact on earth. That only got one amen. And let me tell you why that is. Because somehow we have been led to believe that all it takes is we're going to stand before God one day. God's going to ask us a question. We're going to pull out a cheat sheet. And we're going to say, Jesus. And God's going to say, okay, you got the answer right. You passed. And that's not it. Brothers and sisters, it's not about standing before God one day and getting the right answer. It's about right now in your life knowing Jesus. And that determines everything. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I want every single person under the sound of my voice to spend eternity in heaven. But eternal life is not merely about a time in the future or a destination we'll one day be in. The life that Jesus offers is so much more than that. For it is about a relationship that's full of life, full of grace, full of goodness, full of blessings, full of promise that starts right now in this life. And praise be to God, it is perfected and will endure forever. But eternal life, don't miss it, is knowing him now. And thankfully in the Gospel of John, and this is how I want to end, although don't let go too soon. In the Gospel of John, we are introduced to person after person that was changed because of an encounter they had with Jesus. And if meeting Jesus changed them, then it also means that meeting Jesus will change us. This is why this list in the Gospel of John is so encouraging to us. And let me just kind of walk you through this. If everyone in the Gospel of John was as brilliant as Nicodemus, some of us might become discouraged. When I say some of us, I mean me. I struggle sometimes, and I said this in the first service. You know, oftentimes people assume that whoever the pastor of the church is is the person that's the smartest. I can assure you that is not the case. Thank you. Thank you. Every pastor in this room, we're dumb as a box of rocks. So that is the reality. And here's the deal. I struggle with that sometimes, and there's times where I walk into a, a room with a bunch of pastors, and I'm like, I don't even know what they're saying. Like, I don't even know what they're talking about. I'm pretty sure they don't know what they're talking about, but I don't know what they're talking about. And I struggle, and here's the deal. I'm not the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way because I'm the smartest one in the room. I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Ocean Way because God called me here. That is the only picture. But if everybody was brilliant like Nicodemus, many of us would become discouraged. If, if every person in John was sitting at the feet of Jesus like Mary. Every time you see Mary in the gospel, she's at the feet of Jesus. 
If that's all we saw, we would become discouraged. If all we saw was Mary Magdalene's devotion outside the tomb and her grabbing a hold of Jesus, we might become discouraged. If all we saw is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people are saved, we might become discouraged when we share the gospel and nothing happens. Yet understand this, before they were saints, they were sinners. Sins of the worst kind, sexual sins, prideful sins, jealous sins, betraying Jesus kind of sins. Yet by the end of the gospel, sinners have been forgiven, they've been redeemed, they've been changed, they've been transformed. And how did that happen? They believed in Jesus as the Son of God and they found life in his name. Peter was restored. Nicodemus, I believe, was unashamed. The Samaritan adulterer became a missionary to her own people. Mary Magdalene, who was possessed by seven demons, was the first person to declare the message that Jesus had risen from the dead. John, who wanted to call down fire from heaven and consume all the Samaritans, he was a son of thunder, yet he writes more about the love of God than any other New Testament writer. How do you explain it all? The only answer is this, they met Jesus. They met Jesus. And who is glorified when an adulterer becomes a missionary? Who is glorified when a doubter becomes a believer? Who is glorified when Jesus forgives a man like Peter who betrayed Jesus in his darkest hour? Who is glorified when an angry man like John becomes the apostle of love? And the only answer is this, brothers and sisters, God is glorified. God is glorified when human vessels, that is us, Display the change that Jesus makes in our lives. God is glorified. When we display a change that has come into our lives because of Jesus, God is always glorified. And let me end today with the words from a sermon that was preached in 1926. It was preached by a man named Dr. James Francis, a sermon that was entitled One Solitary Life. And it's kind of long, so just bear with me, but it will be on the screen. But one of the excerpts of this sermon, Francis said this, Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside of a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. And then he says this, I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, 
all the parliaments that ever set and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. Brothers and sisters, how has that one solitary life changed your life? How, how are you different than what you once were? Have you believed? Have you put your full weight upon Jesus? And have you been changed because of it? Let me end with an illustration here from different pastors and put in different ways. But let's just say today you were all of a sudden, I'm in the middle of my message and you come busting in. The doors in the back bust open and you run in and you say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm late. I was walking on my way to church today. And as I was walking, there was a piano that was being lowered from a third floor of a building and I decided I was going to walk underneath it because the rope looked strong. And as I walked underneath it, the rope broke and the piano fell on me. But the EMTs came and they checked me out and I'm good. They gave me a ride to church. Everything is good. What, what would we think in that moment? Either A, a miracle has, has happened. Praise be to God. But show me pictures and please verify. Or we would say, that person has lost their mind. They're lying. Sit down, shut up, or meet me at the altar. I mean, that's, that's what we would say in that moment. Why? Because if you had an encounter with a piano from the third floor, your life would look different. Maybe there would be no life at all. But something would change, right? Well, in a much greater way, incalculable way, we cannot meet the Savior of the world and be left the same. Our lives will look different, which begs the question, how has that one solitary life changed our life? How are, we, how are we being changed? Maybe today is a day that we need to call upon his name and be saved, put our trust, our faith, lean all that we are upon him. Or maybe this is also a day that we need to realize that our faith needs to grow. At the end of the epistle of Peter, Peter writes, I write these things to you, he says, that you may grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I pray for us, that we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, not just in our knowledge, not just becoming puffed up with knowledge, but that knowledge pours forth through our lives into action, that we would grow in our faith. With that said, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. We're going to call the band forward as we enter in this time of invitation and consecration and let us pray in this moment father we thank you again we thank you for your word your powerful word and we thank you that john you wrote what was necessary for us to believe and have life in jesus's name lord i pray for anyone under the sound of my voice that has never put their full weight of trust upon jesus maybe they've Believe 50% while trusting themselves and others 50%. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is trusting Jesus, you alone. Our full weight upon you. May that happen today. Lord, may you call us as your own, Lord, a deeper faith in you. Whatever scenario we want to say, whether it get out, get out of the boat and walk on the water to you, Jesus bringing you what we have like the boy brought with five loaves and two fish 
whatever that looks like, whatever you're calling us to do, may we do it. May we do it as an illustration of, Lord, us growing in our faith, trusting you more. Lord, finish this time. Have your way. In Jesus' name.